18 and a half hours, roughly 56% of the day, 810 minutes, 48,600 seconds, or the amount of time that it takes to microwave 488 bags of popcorns or listen to 33 of my sermons. 13 and a half hours completely changed the world. But how did those 13 and a half hours change the world? Well, if we want to be technical about it, during those 13 and a half hours, tiny fibers that were enclosed inside of a vacuum were continuously heated to extremely high temperatures, and the glow that these tiny little fibers emitted were unlike anything that the world had ever seen before. But we probably don't want to get technical about it. And I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself in the story anyway. Because instead of talking about how these 13 and a half hours changed the world, we probably need to go back and think about what the world was like before these 13 and a half hours occurred. Before these 13 and a half hours, a large portion of every single day was cloaked in darkness and mystery. These mysterious moments were filled with both real and imagined enemies. You see... Before these 13 and a half hours, whenever the sun went down, darkness rolled in. And when darkness rolled in, people's minds started to play some tricks on them. They started imagining things like hobgoblins and sprites and vampires and werewolves and ghosts and witches. And even Satan himself were wandering around in the darkness. And even though these supernatural creations never actually showed up in the dark, the, rea the reality is that there were things like criminals, murderers, thieves, and vandals that roamed the streets in the dark of night. So before these 13 and a half hours that changed the world, even the bravest of souls would have been at least a little bit scared of the dark. Because let's face it, nobody wanted to meet one of the infamous gangs of Munich in the dark. Because each night they went out with the sole purpose of attacking the very first person that they met. Or there were gangs in England which were known for attacking pedestrians and, and assaulting innocent women under the cloak of darkness. But even if you were wise enough to spend your twilight hour safely behind the locked doors of your home, that didn't mean that you were out of harm's way. Everything from oversized Ottomans to petite Victorian couches threatened to jump out in the middle of the night, causing you to stub a toe, maybe say a bad word, or trip and seriously hurt yourself. This is why, for generations in places like Sweden, people commonly pushed all of their furniture back against the walls before they went to bed, trying to make sure that they didn't bump into anything in the night. Of course, the fear and danger of the dark were enough to encourage people to try to find ways to bring light to the darkness. And the methods that we tried for generations were primitive at best, like lighting torches that mankind has been using for thousands of years. Then we tried more modern methods, like using handsome pottery and metal oil lamps that sported sophisticated wicks and designs that artfully sealed the reservoirs that were filled with oil to help the light last a little longer. And of course, there were candles. My, how we as people have always loved candles. But the reality is, before these 13 and a half hours, candles didn't offer much illumination, and they flat out stunk as far as smelling awful. 
This was well before Yankee Candle figured out how to make candles smell good. But regardless of the method that we used, whether it was a torch or a lamp or a, light, uh, or a candle, they all relied on the same force to bring light to the darkness, fire. And the sad reality is that the fire that burned was usually far more dangerous than even the most fearsome enemies that you might encounter in the middle of the night. After all, one reporter famously postulated that all it took to start the Great Chicago Fire of 1871 was one small lantern and the unfortunate kick of a cow. By the time that blaze was finally extinguished, the fire that began with a small spark had destroyed about 3.3 square miles of Chicago. It had left 90,000 people homeless and killed hundreds more. All of us is what made those 13 and a half hours so important. Because after these 13 and a half hours, the impenetrable cloak of darkness had been tr penetrated. After these 13 and a half hours, the mysterious folklore of things that go bump in the night had been exposed as little more than cute stories that we told to try to scare one another. After these 13 and a half hours, the rampage of criminals that began nightly after the sun went down had been squelched by the long arm of the law that could now see in the dark. These 13 and a half hours, after they happened, no one had to rely on the dangerous power of fire to brighten the night because they now were able to rely on a newfangled piece of technology that would do the job instead. So how was all of this possible? It was possible because on October 22, 1879, Thomas Edison showed off his newest creation, and he illuminated the world for 13 and a half hours with the first truly working incandescent light bulb. Now, the light bulb has taken on a lot of evolutions from 1879, from Thomas Edison's original creation that only burned for 13 and a half hours. And the light bulb has truly become a modern-day marvel that will last for years at a time. There is no doubt, in spite of all of the changes that have happened to Edison's design, that the light bulb forever changed the world we live in. The light bulb changed the world because now we have streetlights and flashlights and headlights, things that make it safe for us to go out at night. With the flip of a single switch, we can now spare ourselves from the dangers of furniture that is lurking in our homes and the unfortunate pain of stubbing our toes. And all of this only scratches the surface of just how much the world was changed because of those 13 and a half hours. Today's Senior Adult Sunday, and as I think back, um, I remember a conversation that I got to have with my great-grandmother. My great-grandmother was born in the very early 1900s, lived to be over 100 years old, actually lived in her own house till she was 100 years old and had to move into assisted living. But in middle school, I had a project one year that we were encouraged as students to go and sit down with somebody older than we were to talk with them about what the world was like when they were young. So I got to sit down with my great-grandmother. We traveled up to Ohio for a family gathering, and I said, said great-grandma, can I interview you and hear what it was like when you were a kid? And I asked her, I said, Grandma, what was the biggest change? Great-grandma, what was the biggest change that happened in your life? And she looked at me and she said, probably the biggest change that happened in my life was electricity. 
the farmhouse that I grew up in didn't have any, and I still remember what it was like when they finally were able to run the power out to the house. She said, because i got to tell you, as a farmer's wife, and she spent a 100 years living on a farm, as a farmer's wife, nothing made my life easier than when we finally had a refrigerator. She was amazed by the advances of that technology. But then we talked a little bit more, and she said, but really, as cool as that refrigerator is, and as nice as it is to have that in our house, having lights so that you could work longer, so that you could spend time with your family after all the farm work was done, so that we can have these big gatherings and see what we're passing around the, play, around the tables and enjoy. Light has made all the difference in the world. The world was changed for all of us with those 13 and a half hours. For as that bowl burned for those 13 and a half hours, the light entered the world. And once light arrives, darkness cannot defeat it. Once light arrives, darkness cannot defeat it. It's said that the flame of a single candle on a clear night can be seen from miles away if the rest of the world is dark. Because light cannot be overpowered. It cannot be defeated by darkness. Yet as famous as Thomas Edison and his incredible light bulb are, there is someone who is much more important. Someone who matters so much more because of the light that he brought into this world. So if you will, go ahead and grab your Bibles with me and turn to John chapter 3. And as you're turning to John chapter 3, I just want to remind you about who, who wrote this book? This book is written by John. John is not only one of Jesus' closest followers, one of Jesus' disciples, but John is also part of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. There are few people who ever walked this earth who knew Jesus as well as John does. So when we're reading from the Gospel of John like we're doing in our small groups and Sunday school classes right now, we are reading from somebody who experienced Jesus, who heard these things firsthand. This is eyewitness testimony for us about what's happening. So John's not just writing about what somebody else has experienced. He's telling us firsthand what Jesus told him. And in John chapter 3, Jesus is going to tell us a lot about who he is. So John chapter 3, we're going to start reading together in verse 14. This is what John tells us Jesus said. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so, that the, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him won't perish, but will have eternal life. God didn't send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him isn't judged. Whoever doesn't believe in him is already judged, because they don't believe in the name of God's only Son. This is the basis for judgment. The light came into the world. But people loved darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who did wicked things hated the light, and don't come to the light for fear that their actions will be exposed to the light. Whoever does the truth comes to the light so that it can be seen that their actions were done in God. In this passage, in John chapter 3, a man named Nicodemus has come to visit Jesus. And appropriately enough, Nicodemus comes to visit Jesus when it is late at night. 
And Nicodemus does this because Nicodemus is a Pharisee. And Pharisees are pretty important people. They are some of the most powerful people in all of Israel during this day and age. The Pharisees were perhaps the most elite religious society of their day. They were part priest and they were part politician. They were a who's who of Israel. They were leaders in the temple. They were leaders in their communities. They were the ones. They were the ones of ancient Israel. They were the people that lived there that, that kids would have emulated. Little boys would have wanted to grow up to be like. This is who Nicodemus is. Elite. A scholar. A politician and a priest. Somebody that is idolized and idealized by little kids. And he's coming to meet Jesus. But Jesus isn't a Pharisee. Jesus isn't a Pharisee, but people are still treating Jesus like he is a leader. Jesus isn't a Pharisee, but people are still flocking to Jesus, coming to watch as he performs miracles and listen to Jesus as he talks about God. And the Pharisees, they didn't like that very much. In their minds, they were the religious leaders. They were the elite of their day. They were the ones that people should have been flocking to, coming to listen to them teach and see the way that they lived their lives. They were the ones that should have been answering the questions that people had about God. It shouldn't be this Jesus guy. But Nicodemus couldn't help but hear about Jesus. He couldn't help but hear about the miracles that Jesus was performing and the things that Jesus was teaching. So he decided that he needed to go and visit Jesus. But he can't do that in the broad daylight and risk being seen by one of his fellow Pharisees. After all, if he had done something like that, he would have become the laughing stock of the entire group. If anyone found out about his visit to Jesus, they would have made fun of him mercilessly for years to come. So what does Nicodemus do? He sneaks out in the middle of the night when it's dark outside. Now, if you've ever wandered around in a dark place, a truly dark place without the help of a flashlight to aid you along the way, you can probably imagine what Nicodemus' journey looked like as he was trying to find Jesus. Here you had this prestigious man who often walked around with his chest puffed out and his head held high. And now that he's not out in daylight, he has to hunch forward with his arms flailing out in front of him, trying to make sure that he doesn't bump into something on his way to find Jesus. But Nicodemus wasn't just wandering around in physical darkness that night. When it came to spiritual matters, Nicodemus was wandering around hunched forward with his arms out in front of him, trying to find his way along, too. Even though Nicodemus was a religious scholar, even though he was part of the elite, even though he was a leader of the culture, Nicodemus went to Jesus because Nicodemus realized that he was still missing something. Sure, he had been trained in all the ways of the law. Sure, he could recite the Ten Commandments on spot. He could regale you with stories about Father Abraham and Moses and David and other uh, famous fathers of our faith. But all of these stories hadn't been enough for Nicodemus. They weren't enough to illuminate the darkness that he still found himself in. So Nicodemus went to Jesus in the pitch black of night because Nicodemus needed to find the light. It was as if Nicodemus had spent his entire life fumbling around in a dark room trying to find a light switch on the wall. We've all been there, right? You walk into a room, it's pitch black, you know there's a switch somewhere, you don't know where it's at, and your hands are all over the wall trying to figure out where it is. 
Well, that's what Nicodemus had spent his entire life doing. And as his hands frantically searched every square inch of the wall of his life, he'd occasionally bump into something that seemed to be moving him in the right direction. He'd learn about God's creation, or he'd study God's law, or he'd cry out one of the prayers of the psalmists, or he'd be humbled by the words of the prophets. And all of these things were helpful. They let him know that there was a light switch somewhere that would eventually be turned on. But none of them were the light that Nicodemus was looking for. But then Nicodemus, in his frantic and wild searching, runs across Jesus. And Jesus turns on the light switch for him. Jesus, is vanquishes, Jesus vanquishes the darkness that Nicodemus had lived in his entire life. And Jesus does it with six words that change the world every bit as much as Thomas Edison's light bulb did. And you've known these six words, most of you, since you were kids in a Sunday school class. Jesus tells Nicodemus, for God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. And just like that, the light went on. Just like that, the world was changed because of the shocking revelation for God so loved the world. Now, how many of you were shocked when you heard these six words? That just goes to show how important, how transformational these words are. How many of you were shocked when you got up this morning and you went to the wall in your bedroom and you turned on the light switch and a light bulb came on above your head? Nobody. You took it for granted, right? You would have freaked out if you went and you flipped on the switch and it didn't turn on. Then there's a problem. But these words are so shocking, they are so transformational, that they have completely changed the world, just like the light bulb, where we are now used to them, where we are now accustomed to them. We're accustomed to hearing, for God so loved the world. But before Jesus said this to Nicodemus, this was a radical thought. Because that's not the way that the world saw God. The world always envisioned God as being for a particular person. It didn't matter if you were talking about the God that we worship in this place or one of the other gods that were worshipped somewhere in the world. Gods were only in favor of a certain group of people. They were only in favor of a certain nation or people that worshipped them or people that met certain qualifications. But when Jesus comes and he says, for God so loved the world, no one, no one could have imagined someone saying something like that before Jesus walked this earth. These words spoke of a God who loved the entire world, not just one person, not just one country, not just one religious group, but a God who loved the entire world. And that's why they're so important. These six little words flip the switch for they turn on the light for us. They illuminate the truth that we are all so loved by God. We are so loved by God. It's revolutionary for Nicodemus. If you would ask Nicodemus who God loved before he walked in and he talked to Jesus that day, Nicodemus would have told you that God loved people like him. He was Jewish. He was a religious leader. He was a scholar. He was a leader of his people. He was the kind of person that God loved. And if you would have asked Nicodemus who God didn't love, he would have pointed to people like us. He would have said there are people who aren't Jewish. There are people who are Gentiles in this world, and God does not love them the way that God loves me. 
God loves me. I am in his favor. I am one of his people. I am part of his, his country that he has selected. I am part of his re- elite religious group. So when Jesus says, for God so loves the, the world, and we hear that we are all so loved by God, Nicodemus' mind is blown. And Nicodemus has to reconcile this. We are all loved by God. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish or Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're white or if you're black or another race altogether. It doesn't matter if you're rich or if you're poor. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or a Muslim. It doesn't matter. Nothing else matters in the news that we are all loved by God. God so loves the world, and that includes You are so loved by God. But let's be honest here. Loved is the last thing that a lot of people feel in the world today. And that reminds me of a story that Tony Campola, who is a well-known teacher, writer, speaker, preacher, has shared over the years. In the story, Tony tells of a trip that he made to Honolulu, Hawaii, And it shows just how unloved people feel in the world around us all the time. As Tony tells it, he had arrived in Honolulu, Hawaii, and he was suffering from jet lag after the long flight there. So he finds himself wide awake at 3.30 in the morning. He's a little bit hungry, so he decides he's going to leave his hotel and he's going to find a place to eat. And he discovers, not far from his hotel, an all-night diner with the, the old school stools just sitting around the countertop. The man behind the counter wipes his greasy hands on his grease-stained apron, and he asks Tony, what do you have? Just a cup of coffee and a donut, Tony replied. Well, while his server is bringing out the coffee and the donuts, a group of eight or nine boisterous women burst in the door right behind Tony, and they start sitting down along all of the open seats across the counter, laughing and talking doesn't take Tony long to realize that this group of women were all prostitutes. And Tony started thinking about a way that he could make his exit as quickly as possible. Because, let's just be honest here, Tony Campola remains one of the most popular and influential Christian speakers in the country today. And let's just say that being spotted with a bunch of prostitutes has never been good for a preacher's reputation. So Tony finishes off his coffee as quickly as he can, but he's still listening to the women that are seated around him. And he hears one of the women that is seated close by say, tomorrow's my birthday. I'm turning 39. From down the counter, another one of the women yells back, big deal, big deal, what do you want? You want a cake? You want a party? You want noisemakers and streamers? Do you want somebody to sing you happy birthday? I'm not asking for anything. The woman said, I've never had a birthday party in my entire life. Why start now? Well, the group soon left, and Tony was still sitting at the counter in that diner. And he asked Harry, the name of the man who was behind the counter, do those women come here every night? Yes, Harry replied. I know all of them pretty well. That's Agnes. She's the one who's having the birthday tomorrow. Why do you ask? Tony replied, What do you say we have a birthday party right here for her tomorrow night? Harry smiled, and he called his wife out from the kitchen to tell her Tony's idea. Tony told him that he would be back at 2.30 the next morning with a cake and the decorations, but Harry stopped him and said, no, we'll take care of the cake. 
By the next night, the word was out on the street. And at 3.15 in the morning, the diner was packed with street people and prostitutes. Tony had hung up crepe paper and a big sign that read, Happy Birthday, Agnes. And when she walked in the doors, everybody shouted, Happy Birthday, to her. She was so surprised in that moment that her knees buckled. And someone had to help her find a seat. Her eyes started to fill with tears. And then they brought out the cake, and she almost lost it. Agnes broke into sobs. She was so torn up, so emotional, that she couldn't even blow out the birthday candles on the cake and had to ask someone else to do it for her. She just couldn't take her eyes off of her very first birthday cake. She looked at Tony and she said, Before we cut it, can I take it home? Can I take it home just for a little while? I just live down the street and I want to show it to some people there. As the doors closed behind Agnes, a deep silence fell over the entire diner. After a few moments, Tony broke it by saying, What do you say we all pray for Agnes together? And Tony prayed. He prayed for Agnes' life to change. He prayed for God to be good to her. He prayed for her salvation. And after he finished, Harry, the owner of the diner, looked at him and said, you didn't tell me that you were a preacher. What church do you belong to? Tony didn't answer the question right away, but he sat and he thought. After a moment, he looked over at Harry and he said, I belong to the church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. The man sneered at him. He said, no, you don't. There's no church in the world like that. If there was, then I'd join it. You know, Tony Campola was right. He does belong to the church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. And you know what else is true? You belong to that church too. You belong to that church too. We all belong to that church because we all belong to a church that believes for God so loved the world. This means that God loves a prostitute named Agnes in Honolulu, Hawaii enough to throw her a birthday party in the middle of the night. This means that God loves a starving child living halfway across the world that you will never meet or see enough to make sure that she gets fed. This means that God loves the elderly person that is living down the street who can never seem to get her garbage can picked up from the streets after it's been collected enough to walk down to her house and bring her garbage can back up the driveway for her. This means that God loves the waitress enough who is serving a meal to make sure that she is cared for by living, leaving a real tip for her. And this means that we're supposed to all love the world the exact same way. We're supposed to be God's light bulbs in this world, shining the light of God's love everywhere that we go. When we walk into our church and we bump into the preacher, a deacon, a Sunday school teacher, somebody who's there for the very first time, they're supposed to see the light of God's love shining through us. When we're walking through our grocery store and we bump into a stock boy, a cashier, a short customer who needs help grabbing a can from the top shelf, we're so, they're supposed to see the light of God's love shining through, through us. When we're driving down the road and we pass by a police officer, a firefighter, 
a prostitute, a homeless person, or even the guy that just cut us off in traffic a couple miles back, they're supposed to see the light of God's love shining through us. Why? Because the light of God's love is in us. And as followers of Jesus, we are supposed to be filled with this light, a light that has forever changed this world by so loving the whole world that's what God does. God loves the whole world. And we're supposed to love it too. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this story in John's gospel. This account that John shares of Jesus completely changing the world with six little words. For God so loved the world. God, we are so grateful that you love this entire world. Not just us sitting inside of this room. Not just us sitting inside of this state or this country or this hemisphere. But you love the entire world, God. You love us enough to care for us. To watch out for us. But you also love us enough to say that we should love one another too. So God, allow us to see the world through your eyes instead of ours. Let us see people not as being less than we are, but as being more than enough for you. As people that you love so deeply, let us be challenged as this service draws near an end to go out into this world and let that light shine, a light that truly changes the world so that we can meet people like the diner owner named Harry who cannot believe the love that he has seen shown through a complete stranger in a diner across the country. Let us illuminate others the way that Tony Campola illuminated Harry and changed his world too. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.